If you choose to become inactive or to leave the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where will you go? What will you do? You're entering Outer Brightness. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case you didn't get it in those first few, few verses, right? You, you, you were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did, did I born myself again? No. He made me alive together with Christ. Listen, I can no more manufacture the second birth than I manufactured the first one. Welcome, Fireflies, to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. And as you can tell, we have two very special guests with us this week. Uh, we have Ben Hyink and Darren Caldwell. Is that how you pronounce your names? Is that correct? That's correct. You got it. Yes. Awesome. All right. Yeah, all that, all that uh, English and Greek study recently has been helping out. All right. So, yeah, we'd like to thank you guys for coming out to, to the podcast. Um, as a brief introduction to them, they're both pastors who are serving at Covenant Grace Church in Syracuse, Utah. Um, we'll give more information in the details of when we publish the podcast and also at the end, they'll talk more about their ministry. So um, it's a church that I was able to visit while I visited family over the holidays. Uh, we, our church here in uh, Albany, New York, we actually have been praying for their church uh, for months. You know, we, we heard updates through emails. And so every week in our prayer meetings, we've been praying for them that, uh, that the work would go forward and that the Lord would bless their, their ministry. And so it was really great to be able to go out and visit and to see them preach and to fellowship with them. So uh, thank you, Ben and Darren, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And uh, just to give a little bit more background, too, um, I when I attended their church, uh, the first Sunday that I attended, uh, I believe it was Darren, you gave the sermon and you had sprinkled in. Um, I really love the service because they are pastors of a confessional church. And so as part of their service, they would also quote from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, um, which is a confession that they hold to. However, if I understand it correctly, you don't require all of your members to hold to every point of that confession. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. But, but in a sense, it's, it's kind of a confession as to what you will teach the membership every week. And so it's not that you have to hold to every single piece of doctrine, but that's what you'll be teaching. That's kind of how I understand. Yeah, yeah exactly. We want people to know what they will hear. Uh, any given Sunday, if they want to know what we, where we stand on any, you know, I guess there's what 32 chapters. So, you know, 32 different points of things. Um, then they're, they're more than welcome. It's, it just puts it all right out there uh, for anybody to see. Um, but it doesn't, it's, it's a confession that we grow into, not something that we all have to understand. You know, we would want a, a child uh, who knows the gospel and is saved to be just as welcome, uh, you know, if they're you know old enough to be a member without having to understand, you know, uh, all the points of doctrine, uh, but to give them something that they can grow into and, and learn and as we're all learning together. So we wanted it to be a really robust confession for that 
for one of that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, that's great. And and I think it's important to have a confession for your church in that same sense. I know that the John MacArthur, he's he technically doesn't he doesn't hold the 1689 London Baptist Confession, but they do have a confession for their church, and it's very similar in the sense that he says this is what we teach at our church. You don't have to agree with every single point of it, but this is what we'll be teaching. And so I, I really like that because then you can know, okay, when you're, when you're looking for a church, you can know exactly what they'll be teaching every Sunday. So I think that's really important. Exactly. Um, yep, nothing and, secret, nothing hidden. Exactly. And the other thing is it keeps us consistent uh, with a historical yes. uh, reform theology. It's not something that Darren and I sat down and said, Hey, let's come up with this brand new document. It was something we said, okay, let's agree with uh, what, you know, reformed Baptist churches have uh, confessed for centuries and, um, let's agree with that. And so it, it's not only gives, uh, new members or, uh, visitors an understanding of what we believe right from the outset that we're not hiding anything. This is what we believe. It's something that also we can say, Hey, this is something that reformed Baptists have believed for centuries. Exactly. And that's when we look at the reformers, they, they were not trying to do something brand new. Like you said, they were trying to show they would, you know, Calvin would even look back to the church fathers and compare what the church fathers had said over the centuries so that he would make sure, am I coming up with something brand new or, or is this something that we can look down through the ages and see what the Christian church has taught? And so, yeah, that's, that's great. That's, that's, we could even do a whole other episode on confessionalism <laughs> and why that's important. And I, I love, I love confessionalism. Um, but yeah, that's, but I bring that up because I really enjoyed the fact that you incorporated that into the preaching, into the, to the worship service that, you know, it's not just this dry document that we read to the side and you have to, you know, profess it and then move on. It's something that's part of the church. It's part, it's part of the worship. And, and, and something I also really enjoyed was during, um, during Darren's sermon, he didn't make the sermon about covenant theology, but he incorporated concepts and beliefs about, you know, from within covenant theology into the sermon. And I found that incredibly edifying. Um, ben, you did the same. We, we just talked about priesthood in, in, in our previous episode that we were just wrapping up and you had talked about how God wanting to make a, a dwelling place among mm-hmm. his people. Mm. And I really loved that sermon. I just, you know, I found that incredibly edifying as well. Um, so, and just seeing how God is working amongst his people. And so that's kind of why I was interested to, to bring you guys on the show and ask for us to talk about covenants because when missionaries are teaching, when LDS missionaries are teaching, one of the things that they bring up are covenants, you know, God makes covenants, we make covenants with God. And so a lot of Latter-day Saints are confused about what Christians believe about covenants. Um, and so we really wanted to talk about how do we understand covenants as Latter-day Saints? And for those who are coming out of the Latter-day Saint church and into Christianity, what are they, what do they expect? What do Christians believe about covenants? And so that's kind of high level what we wanted to discuss uh, today for our topic. So to kind of start the discussion off, um, I wanted to pose a question specifically uh, between me, Michael and Paul, since we are both, we're all former Latter-day Saints. So um, Michael and Paul, uh, what were you taught? Uh, what consistent what's consisted in a covenant in the LDS church? What did it require? So uh, let's start with you, Michael. Yeah. So when I was a Mormon, when they would talk about covenants, it would be a two-way promise between us and God. And these were always initiated by priesthood leaders at the time of a priesthood ordinance. So for example, when we were baptized, we were making a covenant to God that among other things, we would keep his commandments and in return, he would grant us eternal life. Um, And so the pressure was on us because of these covenants to be perfectly obedient. And by being obedient to our end of the covenant, we would bind God, so to speak, and force him to give us eternal life. 
Um, now there are some, a lot of Latter-day Saints these days who will say that you do not have to be obedient for the covenant to stay in force, uh, but you do still have to receive the LDS ordinances to get into those covenants. And if you were to leave the LDS church, it would still, uh, the covenant would still be broken. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I wanted to point out. Um, so one of the books of scripture that the Latter-day Saints hold to is called the Doctrine and Covenants. And in that book, uh, chapter 130, I think this is the section, this is what Michael is referring to. Um, it says there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And we, when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. And that's verses 20 and 21. And I think that's, that's what you were alluding to Michael, right? When you said that when we obey God and we make these covenants, then God is kind of forced to bless us. Like if we obey, he must, he must bless yeah, us. And then there's also that, that verse, um, and I don't remember where it is now, but where it says, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. So that was another one. And I mean, we'd be on our mission on, on in the mission field. And I remember we we had this whole campaign where it's like, oh, we're going to be really, really obedient this week. And we're going to bind God and and force him to help us find people to baptize. And I look back at that now and I'm just like, how could I have been so arrogant to think that I could bind God through my actions? But that is what I believed as a Latter-day Saint. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think back on what we used to believe, right? Versus now. <laughs> uh, Paul, did you have anything to add to that? No, not, not much. Matthew or Michael did a pretty good job covering uh, Latter-day Saint belief on covenants. Um, the only thing I would add is he, he mentioned that uh, you know, nowadays, some Latter-day Saints will say that you don't have to be obedient uh, for the covenant to apply. And I would just say that, you know, I, I applaud a Latter-day Saint if they're moving in that direction because they seem to be moving in the direction and they're thinking uh, towards grace. But uh, it does not align with, with Latter-day Saint scriptures, as Matthew, you pointed out. Uh, so DNC 8210. Uh, I'm, I'm Lord and bound when you do what I say and, and DNC 130. So it, it, it takes away that two-way promise concept that, that Latter-day Saints have about covenants. If you, if you try to say that you don't have to be obedient or, you know, or that if you're disobedient, the covenant's not going to be null and void. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Paul. All right. Uh, Darren and Ben. So first of all, I want to say again, thank you for coming on. And it's nice to finally have some more reformed guys on my side. The reformed are now outnumbering the non-reformed. So that means, you know, like we can, we can push stuff through the house, you know, we can pass some bills, you know, and get stuff done here. Oh, is that what's happening here? Yeah. We're, we're, it's a hostile takeover. We're going to have a vote tonight. You know, I think that, I think that me and Paul together count as like a reformed person or at least half of one <laughs> these days. Yeah. They're, they're quasi reformed. Like we have lots of discussions. And, you know, Michael listened to a Vody Bauckham sermon the other day, and he really loved that. He's like, you know what? This whole reform thing is sounding really good right now. And I'm just like in the corner, like, yes. <laughs> We're going to have to change our name. You, maybe you've got five whole points or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you guys for coming on again. Um, so related to the first question, uh, how they describe how Latter-day Saints see covenants, how would you respond from a biblical perspective? Were there parts of that that would be, that would be in line with the Bible or how would you, how would you explain what a covenant is, what it requires from the Bible? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, hearing what you said, like it's, I, I've never heard like the, the DNC definitions and, and uh, aspects of that. But when I heard that, what I'd say is that is absolutely biblical. 
in relation to the law, in relation to um, to to the law of merit, uh, or, or what we would call, you know, we'll get into the terminology probably here in a little bit, but what we would call the covenant of works, that if you obey, then God is obligated to give blessing. You know, uh, Paul ta- talks about this in Romans 4, that to the one who works, he gets what he's due. Um, you earn wages. Um, the problem with it is that it doesn't recognize our standing before God since the fall. Um, so kind of to back up a little bit, we should, you know, when we hear the word covenant, covenant's not a word uh, that we use often uh, in our in our language. I think the only times that we really hear the word covenant brought up, uh, unless it's like in the name of, you know, the Doctrine and Covenants or something like that, uh, you might hear it at a marriage ceremony. Um, you know, maybe some legal jargon, but even then, probably not. You're probably talking contracts. And a contract and a covenant are similar. Um, but a covenant, uh, one guy, a guy named O. Palmer Robertson, I think that's his name, defines it as an oath-bound promise, um, which is a good way to define it because there's a lot of different types of covenants um, that exist in the in the Bible and in uh, humanity and in the world. Um, so when we're talking about what is a covenant, uh, biblically speaking, uh, usually we're looking at an oath-bound covenant or an oath-bound promise between God and men at some level. Um, and there's different types of oath-bound promises. Um, so there's the oath-bound promise where God says, you know, like to the Israelites on uh, Mount Sinai, if you obey, you will receive these blessings. Your, you know, your children won't die. Your, uh, you'll have lots of kids. You'll have um, your animals won't die. Your, your crops will be plentiful. Blessing will shower down upon the promised land, and you'll get to stay here forever. But if you disobey, if you break my covenant, then I will break my covenant with you in a sense. I, I will fulfill the curse of the covenant towards you and you will receive my wrath. I'm going to kick you out of the land and there's going to be famine. There's going to be trial. There's going to be foreign kings coming against you. That's an oath-bound promise. That's a covenant that required obedience in order to be fulfilled. And so in that sense, the the uh, LDS definition or understanding of a covenant is correct. Um, there is merit that if you were to obey the commands of the covenant perfectly, you would obtain, God would, because God is in himself honest, uh, truthful, that he He will not lie or renege on the, the terms of the covenant that he created. Um, every covenant that, that's in scripture comes from God to man as condescension. God didn't have to make any promises to man. He chose to. And if we fulfill perfectly, then we've earned what what the what that covenant promises. The problem is we always we tend to uh, diminish the terms of the covenant. It's no longer I have to obey perfectly. It's I have to obey from a decent heart, or most of the time, or do enough good things that outweighs the bad things, and that will get me my covenant faithfulness. And so we'll come up with all these other rules and regulations, right? It's what the Pharisees did. It's it's what the you know the DNC is all about, right? It's it creates all these additional rules and regulations to help you keep the rules of the covenant. So regular church attendance, tithing, not drinking certain drinks, not doing certain things, doing other things will help you balance those scales. Yeah, and, that, and even what Michael said earlier, um, God views not in not 
in, in a timeline like we do. God just sees everything all at once. So when Michael said, you know, this week we're really going to obey the things that we're supposed to do. We're going to we're going to keep our side of the covenant. God has already seen the week before that we've broken the covenant. And as I heard Michael talk, I guess it it really conjures up a great deal of empathy for our friends here, right? Because yeah. when we look at the Bible, it all it refers to God as a covenant keeping God with his people. If you look in the Bible, it never refers to the people as covenant keeping people. Because from the fall, we are not. We are covenant breaking people. You look at Abraham and this is one of my favorite, you know, explicit covenants that that it talks about because it is God showing that I will keep my covenant, and it, and it's actually sh- uh, shown the cutting of a covenant where He takes these animals and He puts the halves on each side and He walks in between, symbolizing the same thing should happen to me, God, if I don't keep my side of the covenant. We don't see that people making those types of covenants with God. What we see is God making covenants with man because he's the only one who can keep the covenant. I can't think of a time where a human being in the Bible initiates a covenant with God. God is always the initiator of a relationship or a covenant with his people. And so even in that, yes, are are there always going to be similarities in how uh, the LDS refer to covenants and or anything in the Bible. Yes, there will be, but it always, like Darren said, it, it, it's going to fall short because they neglect to remember life post rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad glad you brought up that that covenant that God made with Abraham. Um, I didn't really understand the implications of that until I started listening to a Ligonier series by with R.C. Sproul, and he talked about that. And I think he he gave an anecdote about how. You know, like a lot of times people will go up to them, you know, to R.C. Sproul or to other people at conferences and say, you know, like, write, could you write me the most important passage of the Bible to you? And he wrote that passage, you know, um, or it was a single verse within that passage and you're just reading it. It wouldn't make any sense. Why is that so important? You know, people would be so <laughs> puzzled by it. Why is this the most important passage? You know, I thought it would be John 3.16 or Ephesians 1 or something like that. And he chose this and, and he went in to explain exactly what you said, that whatever God promised, he will fulfill. And he will not go back on that. And, and I think that's, I think, and, I, and, and just to sum up kind of what we've been talking about, um, we're going to get more into how we receive salvation. From the, from the LDS standpoint, I would just add that, like you said, we make covenants with God and we are asked to keep them. And by our obedience, we receive the blessings of salvation. But when we look at the Bible, it's God makes the covenants, God keeps them, and he brings people into unity with Christ into the new covenant. So it's, mm-hmm. it's looking at it com- from a completely different perspective. And mm-hmm. so I think we'll, we'll get more in depth on that. I think as we get, as we go along in the discussion. So thank you. Thank you so much uh, for, for what you've contributed so far. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, and so what we talked about kind of what makes a covenant. So um, Paul and Michael, let's talk about what covenants that Latter-day Saints actually make as members. What, what covenants do they make and how do they make them? Um, so Paul, let's start off with you. Yeah. So uh, the LDS church would define covenants as being related to the ordinances. So all of, all of the LDS priesthood ordinances, it says entail a covenant. Um, so those ordinances would be, would be baptism, uh, the sacrament or, or Lord's supper, 
the endowment ceremony in the temple, washings and anointings in the temple, the endowment ceremony in the temple, uh, marriage and sealing in the temple, and uh, I suppose also the uh, second anointing in the temple. You had to go there, Paul. I'm sure there's going to be some Latter-day Saint out there that's going to get triggered. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to that? (laughs) You know, we made so many covenants in the LDS church that I don't even remember all of the covenants that I made um, specifically. You know, like what covenants I made when I got uh, sealed in the temple, for example. I don't even really remember it that well. But just to go over some of them, uh, just from different ordinances, but we made covenants to mourn with those that mourn, to stand as witnesses of God in all times and in all places. Um, we made the covenant to be chaste, to live the word of wisdom, you know, to to take care of our bodies. Um, and then we in the temple, we made the covenant to defend the LDS church, even by sacrificing our own lives if necessary. And I believe we made a covenant to keep the law of consecration. Is that correct? Is that how you guys remember it? Which, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of different from how it was in the Doctrine and Covenants where the law of consecration was like physical property. You would consecrate it to the church and then they, they would redistribute it. But in the, yeah, in the temple ceremony, there is kind of a, a modified law of consecration where you're willing to give your time, talents, and everything to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. That's, that's right. I remember that now. Yeah. So those were a lot of the covenants that we made. Yeah. And then for males, there's the oath and covenant of the priesthood that we talked about in, in our priesthood episodes. So, right. And, and that basically involves when you receive the priesthood and, and when you honor and magnify that priesthood, you receive, you receive eternal life essentially. So there basically the entire plan and the entire way that Latter-day Saints believe that they'll return to live in the presence of God is by making these covenants and keeping these covenants. And that's why, it's so it's on the forefront of every Latter-day Saints mind when they're thinking about religion, when they're talking about to Christians about covenants. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why this could be a really fruitful discussion, both for Latter-day Saints who may, you know, who are not interested in leaving their church or Latter-day Saints who are questioning or, or Christians that are talking to their Latter-day Saint friends, because as Darren, as you said earlier, you know, Christians are not constantly thinking about how can I make covenants with God to to be saved you know what i mean it's 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 kind of like a, a language barrier we're not it's not really thinking the same it's not the same mindset so when we're trying to talk to them there's there's this barrier that we're not getting through you know they see covenants as essential we have to make covenants and keep them and, and obey as much as we can um so it's just it's it's just a weird it's a translation loss loss in translation so we we kind of so understanding covenants better from the lds perspective and the christian perspective maybe it can help us to witness to them better um so when I wrote the next question for the discussion, um, it sounds like you both kind of already answered it already. Um, the question would be, do Christians make covenants? And does it differ between Christian traditions? But Darren, you kind of already answered that we don't really make covenants. We talk about the, the marriage covenant, right? Um, would you add anything else to that? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are covenants that we make. Uh, you know, some churches, for instance, particularly, um, you know, higher church denominations like Presbyterians, some Baptists, um, they might have a church covenant where the members of the church covenant together. Um, but those covenants that that we make, like a marriage covenant, are between, you know, a, one human being, another, or, you know, a collective body. We don't make covenants between us and God um, because we are not in a position where we can make a covenant between us and God. God himself is 
is high and exalted and far above us. And, and we, we can't hold God to anything. We can't make God obey uh, a promise or fulfill something. You know, one of the ways that I think you hear that would be like, a, you know, foxhole type prayers. God, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church. Um, that would be the kind of covenant that we would make with God. And we know on the face of it, you know, God is under absolutely no obligation to us. Um, and so any covenant, to make a covenant with God is to reverse the order of who God is and who we are. Because every covenant that God makes with man, again, you know, as I mentioned earlier, is an act of condescension where God is stepping down to our level. It's, you know, it, not every covenant is, you know, a covenant of grace, but they're all gracious because God didn't have to reveal anything about himself. We're, we're ants, we're dust. Um, and so God is a good and, and gracious God who reveals himself to us through covenant. Um, yeah, he already that knows us. Condescension um, is, is important because the covenants that we make, I make a covenant with my wife in marriage, right? We are both finite beings. We are born and we will die. Uh, we make a covenant with, you know, a church covenant or, or we covenant together to do whatever. If you break that covenant between finite and finite, you know, it's, it's broken. You, I mean, you kind of move on, right? When you break a covenant like was broken with the covenant of work starting in the garden, when that is broken, like Darren said, at the rebellion of man, we have made, we have broken an eternal covenant and we have an eternal consequence that must be paid. And so God stepping down and making covenant with man is different than man saying, Hey God, infinite being greatest of all, I'm going to covenant with you. It's, 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 I would say it's consistent with LDS theology that they are striving to become like God. So it would make sense Mm -hmm. that they would constantly be trying to make covenants with God, right? They're putting him themselves almost on his level as they are striving to be that. Yeah. Hey, really appreciate this, these answers, Darren, I'm going to jump in and, and kind of key off of something you said. So you said God is under no obligation to us. And when I came out of the LDS faith and uh, just a, a couple of years later, after uh, accepting Christian baptism and, and uh, kind of heading towards ministry, I started to attend seminary and study theology, um, the concept of God as creator, ex nihilo creator, was mm. something that, you know, is kind of anathema to Latter-day Saints. And so as mm. I studied that, studied out that concept and really started to understand how important that is to our understanding of, of who God is in relation to us, um, the, the, the statement that you made that God is under no obligation to us really made sense to me kind of for the first time. But I'm going to, I'm going to represent our, our Mormon friends and, and ask, because for them, they view God as a literal father, both spiritually and uh, you know, in a physical sense as well. And so what would you say to a Latter-day Saint who might say, well, well, God is our literal father. Wouldn't he be neglectful if he didn't keep up obligations to us? How, how would you answer that question? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's you know, the aspect of fatherhood as we see presented in scripture only existed between one man and God um, initially, and that was Adam. Um, but we also see, you know, and we can see that in Genesis uh, 5 and Luke 4, uh, where it talks about that Adam is the son, being the son of God. Um, 
and that you know hopefully that doesn't open up a or maybe we'll get to it uh, <laughs> but uh, um, you know God in his obligation to creatures um, is you know he talks about in in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five what he gives is you know he gives rain uh, on the just and the unjust he he gives his what we call common grace a, a grace that nobody deserves and yet he gives it anyway and when we when we say well isn't god under fatherly obligation to us what we're really saying is that we're entitled to something from god and what we and in order to get that uh, relationship that entitlement we have to say okay well god's our heavenly father um but god doesn't claim heavenly fatherhood over us in our sinful state he claims creator over us um but he actually says, you know, to like the Pharisees and those who are challenging Jesus, Jesus says, your father, you are sons of, of Satan. Um, you have a different spiritual father than what you think you do, um, because genetics doesn't count. It's what, you know, the heart is. First um, Corinthians 15, uh, which, uh, Paul very clearly says the physical comes before the spiritual. And so that fatherhood, we can't look to a spiritual fatherhood. Um, because we have to look at what is our relationship with God grounded on biblically? What does the Bible say about our relationship with God? And, and it sounds great that, yeah, God's our father. Um, but really, what I think we're trying to say is God's entitled to give me something. And God's obligated to give me something. God's obligated to relate to me in a certain way. But if all we are is creatures, you know, Psalm 8 talks about this. What is man? That you are mindful of him. And every relationship of ours to God has to begin at that level of humility. Because if we don't have that humility before God and understanding our creatureliness, then we really aren't going to understand anything that God does in the Bible. It makes absolutely no sense why God would say, you know what, I'm going to bring Cyrus against you, Israel, to destroy you for my name's sake, because you've forsaken my covenant. I'm going to bring Babylon against you. I'm going to bring famine against you. That sounds, if if we have a, an ob, if God's obligated to provide for us the way that we think of fatherhood now, that would sound to us like abuse. But if we're creatures before God who have violated an eternally perfect God's command and are worthy of, of justice, then what God is doing isn't abusive. It's justice in every moment of pleasure Every moment of joy that we have on this life is actually an act of grace from a God who should rightfully snuff us out. Paul, can I ask you a question kind of in follow-up to that? Is it true that the LDS teach and believe that everyone is born a son of God? Yes. A, a, a child of God. And so I think that's an important distinction as well, right? We believe that we are born in sin, the Bible, sorry, the Bible teaches that we are born in sin and therefore an enemy of God. And yeah. anyone outside of the initiation of God and the grace of God in our lives will remain in that condition. And so I think even at the beginning of what they teach, God is our literal father. They believe that that is true of every person who is born. Mm -hmm. And we would say outside of God, by grace, saving some we are not born sons of God. We are born enemies of God in doing exactly what we want. And that is violating and rebelling against God. Yeah. You know, when son of God is such an important term in scripture 
because we think of sonship as genetic procession. But the Bible, over and over and over, when it uses son of God, it's actually referring to a position. Um, and what we, you know, who you know, Adam is to call the son of God. He stood positionally as God's firstborn to receive the blessings for obedience if he obeyed or the curses if he disobeyed. Israel is called the son of God. Um, and then Jesus, I think it might be surprising to a lot of uh, your LDS listeners to know that Jesus wasn't even declared the son of God until he rose again. Uh, in Romans 1, it says that he was declared to be the son at that time, because what happened is Psalm 89, Psalm 110, God says, I will make you my firstborn son. Um, son of God is a position of preeminence and rightful ownership of the earth. The one who is considered the son of God is the one who, who God has placed as his vice regent, his king, under him, over the earth. Adam existed as a king. Israel was supposed to act like a king in the land of Canaan and then expand to the, the ends of the earth. And they all failed. And so they lost that rightful spot before God and above man until Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins, you know, living a perfect life, rose from the dead. And then what does he say at the end of Matthew? All authority on earth has been given to me. He became that king under under God, so to speak, in his human nature, you always have to remember Jesus had two natures in one person, you know, distinct but indivisible. He was fully God and fully man. And as fully man, he ascended to that role of king, essentially, over the earth. That's what son of God actually means. Um, and that's such a, we, we get that we're so confused because we think of it in our terms instead of God's terms. Darren and Ben, thank you both for your your biblical responses to my question. I really wanted to try to try to represent our Latter Day Saint friends and how they might think about these things. And and you know, I mentioned that I you know I came out of the LDS faith and then I went to seminary, and you know, understanding that our relationship positionally to God as creatures um, mm. is really important. And I think it's key to this understanding, trying to tease out the differences between the way Latter-day Saints might view covenants and Christians might view covenants. Because if I understand my relationship to God as, as creature, um, you know, as you said, Darren, that he's under no obligation to me, but, um, what he does in his faithfulness and in his grace is because of who he is, not because of who I am. And so right. I think that's really right. important to understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's key. That's key. That's huge. So, yeah, I was going to uh, also mention, I mean, along the lines of what Paul said, that Latter-day Saints do view every single person who's ever been born to be a child of God. And like you said, Darren, you know, that, that kind of comes with a belief that God owes them something. And for that reason, Latter-day Saints kind of don't believe that everybody's going to go to hell, that everybody's going to go to some degree of heaven, because why would a loving heavenly father send his children to hell for eternity? So it does end up going full circle. You know, when you get that one belief wrong, it influences everything else. So yeah, I'm really glad that we were able to touch on that. And that dives into also uh, when Latter the Latter-day Saint doctrines of redemption of the dead, because so often they'll, they'll say, what, God only gives grace to some? Why doesn't he offer grace to all? You know, their response to that is, well, God loves everyone equally because we're all his children. So every single person without exception will have the opportunity to either accept the gospel here or in the spirit world after they die. 
and then we do the baptisms and confirmations mm. for them in the temple so that everyone gets a fair shot, you know, like as if it, again, as if it's something that's due to us, if it's something that God owes us. And it's so hard for them to hear the Bible when it says, you know, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That is radically different from the LDS entire worldview. So that's, mm. and so I hope, I hope our Latter-day Saints hear us and, and know that, that we love them and that we're not trying to bully them or to, you know, make them feel like we're so much smarter than they are. We're, we're trying to show the God of scripture and how he has revealed himself. And sometimes truths have to be hard. You know, sometimes, sometimes we don't have all the easy answers to all these questions. So we, but we just have to, we have to place, mm. we have to trust in what God has said about himself rather than take the easy answer that, that seems more comforting. Well, I think, you know, we're so prone to, to hear what we just said and think in, in and of ourselves, the God of the LDS church sounds so much more loving than the God that you just said, because, you know, we're talking about wrath and hell and pre creator and creature rather than father and son. And, and it doesn't sound as loving, but if you were to consider you know, Matthew, I just uh, listened to Matthew 18 today on a walk and you have here a, a king who's loaned, you know, 10,000 talents, which would be if you were to walk into a, you know, to a, a court and you had a debt of 30, 60, a hundred million dollars, you know, we would expect the book to be thrown at us. If we were a bystander to that transaction, we would expect that person has no right or claim. They, they need to lose everything. You know, justice needs to be done. Um, we see that now in our in our political climate. Wh- whatever side we're on, we want justice to be done. You know, if the election was stolen, then you know we need to get those those traitors and thieves out of there. If it wasn't, then we need to get the other traitors and thieves out of there. We want justice. And in that parable, this king who loans out a hundred million dollars or however much it would be in you know our inflation <laughs> today, um, he forgives it. He doesn't even ask him to work it off. He just forgives the debt. But then that that same uh, that same uh, uh, servant is owed, you know, a few months worth of wages, and he goes and he throttles that servant. Has no grace for him, and and uh, and Jesus is telling this parable to, to show that if you have been have received grace, that should change your heart to give grace. But what that shows as well for us is that the God who would give eternal life to any one of us. That is an act of grace so far beyond our comprehension. If God merely gives grace to those who have done all that they can do, then God is simply acting justly. That's not a gracious or kind God. That's just a good judge. If we've actually earned it, if we've kept a promise, but if we haven't kept our promises to God, in fact, we've broken them every single day, every moment of every day in the way we think, act, do all of it. And yet God would still grant even one of us to sit beside him in heaven. That is far beyond any measure of grace we have ever seen or known in this life. And so it's so important for us to understand that, to realize that what might sound nicer is really has a bitter pill on the back end. What sounds harsher up front is full of life and grace and truth on the, you know, when we see it for what it truly is. Beautiful. Amen. Thank you. Um, man, this is great. I feel like, I feel like at any point, this would be an awesome stopping point, you know, like, you know, leaving it, leaving at a high point, you know, just gold, gold all around. Great, great comments, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, so continuing, continuing our discussion of the biblical covenants. Um, we already mentioned the Abrahamic covenant. Um, 
we also mentioned the covenant of works. So from a broad perspective, from your, from your perspective, because I assume that both of you hold to some kind of Reformed Baptist covenant theology. Um, so what covenants does God make um, in the scope of the Bible? So if you can, you can do it chronologically, you know, if you want, you know, from beginning to end, what, what kind of covenants does God make? And not necessarily in depth, but just like in general, what kind of purpose do they serve? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to go first on that one, Don, or do you want to? Yeah. Your explanation of the covenant of works and then is phenomenal. Then we can get into like the specific ones and just give a brief description of each one. Yeah. I'll be, yeah, I'll be it, checking you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, what we see, the, the way God relates to his creatures, to his people is by means of covenant. Um, so the way what God did in the garden is he created a covenant with Adam where he said, you know, this is what you need to do. You're to be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over the earth. And if you obey, you know, and you're not to eat. So that's a positive command, right? Be fruitful, multiply, take dominion. Um, and then the negative command is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, now we look at that and we say, I don't see the word covenant anywhere in Genesis one and two. But what we do see is the promise of a Sabbath rest uh, in Genesis 2, where there is this delighted, contented, uh, ceasing from work that God demonstrates to his creature. This is what it looks like when everything is perfect and good, is the rest of God. And then we also see a tree of life, that if he were to take, we see that we learn this after the fall, in Genesis 3, verse 22, God says, okay, now that Adam has fallen, if he were to take and eat of this tree, he would live forever. So what we understand from that is you don't have to have the word in scripture for the concept to be present, right? So there's no word in scripture in, in Genesis 1 through 3 that God made a covenant with Adam, but we see a, a promise of blessings for obedience and a promise of curses for disobedience. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That's what we would call, uh, and it's been called a number of different things, you know, covenant of creation. Um, I think is the most popular other term for this. It's usually called the covenant of works. And we call it the covenant of works because if Adam had earned, had done what God said, he would have earned um, the right to eat from the tree of life and live forever with God. Um, <clears throat> now, God was under the only obligation God was under to give that was the obligation to himself because he he himself promised it. He didn't have to give Adam that promise, but he did. And if Adam had fulfilled it, he would have earned that, so to speak. Um, that's really important because Adam is the only person ever lived on the face of the earth who actually could have earned his way to heaven. And so when he broke that covenant, ate of the tree of the knowledge of evil, uh, you know, Eve handed it to him, you know. Death came upon mankind, physical death later on, but spiritual death and separation immediately at the time it happened. But Genesis 3.15 is one of the most important and precious verses in all of Scripture, because in that verse, God makes a promise, and he curses the serpent, and he says, the, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God in that moment made a promise of a Messiah to come who would set right what had happened at the fall. That's what we call the covenant of grace or the promise of the covenant of grace. So we've got the covenant of works and the covenant of grace are these two overarching covenants throughout all of scripture. 
And then we have what we would call preservative covenants. Um, so we see that when we get to Noah, the very next covenant in scripture. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah saying, despite your sinfulness, despite the fact that every thought and intention of the heart of man is wicked all the time, um, which is a damning statement, <laughs> um, despite that, I will not judge the earth again with water. I will not wipe out all human life again. And I'm going to set a sign of this. You're going to see my bow in the heavens. That was a preservative covenant. God basically is saying, listen, I made a promise to Adam and Eve that I'm going to bring a Messiah. So I can't, I'm not going to wipe out humankind. In fact, I'm going to preserve humankind despite their sin, uh, which is why when we see the, the a rainbow flag, you know, hovering over like pride parades and things like that, it's actually really appropriate because God made a promise. He's not going to wipe us out despite our sinfulness. Um, <laughs> and he did that to preserve the line uh, of the Messiah. And then we see another covenant that God makes with Abraham. And this covenant has both a, a physical uh aspect and a spiritual aspect. There's going to be people that come from Abraham. This people is going to be the line of the Messiah. And then God, through this people, who's going to give them land and make them prosper and make them a nation, give them kings through this people, through them will come the one who he will bless. All the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And so you have this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's repeated uh, throughout, and God's preserving his people and then you see the old covenant, what uh, what you know Hebrews especially refers to as the old covenant, uh, and that's the covenant on Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, uh, where God is making a covenant with His people that He's redeemed. So this is a people God's already made promises to through Abraham. Now He's codifying that covenant and saying, "Okay, you're my people. I have expectations. You will obey my moral law." You're, and then you're going to obey all these other positive laws, these other extra commandments, these ceremonial laws, these civil commandments, you know, and you're going to do that in order to obtain blessing. And the, the old covenant, that Mosaic covenant is kind of like a shadow of what happened in the Garden of Eden. So we see God kind of replaying history a little bit. Here's my people. You're going to be my son. This is my, my first, uh, in, a, in I think it's Exodus 4, he tells Pharaoh, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. So here's this covenant with his son. If you obey, you know, do this and you will live, it says in Leviticus 19. That's the essence of the old covenants, the essence of the covenant of works. Do and live. Well, they didn't do. <laughs> and uh, and so there's all kinds of threats to the, to the kingdom. God makes one more covenant, narrowing the focus even more. So it goes from Noah, Abraham, now we have David. Here's this covenant of a king who's going to come through um, through David, and this king is going to reign forever. So he's going to be and do what Adam never could do. He's going to be and do what Israel never could do. He will obey, and he will reign. And then God preserves them through Judah, through Babylon, through exile. Finally, Jesus comes. And in Jesus, that promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, that promise that he made to Abraham, that through Abraham, there would be the, the seed who would come bring blessing upon the earth. Galatians 3 tells us that seed, that promise to Abraham, that was the gospel. That was the covenant of grace. And God makes this promise of a covenant of grace to his prophets in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that I'm going to give you, you have a heart of stone, right? Like the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, there's the law. You can't obey it. Now I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make. I'm going to bring you back to me. Give you, give you my spirit. I'm going to revive you. I'm going to 
make you a new person from the inside out. And Jesus comes, and Galatians tells us he was born under the law. So he was born, even though he without he himself was without sin, he took on the law for us. He took on the covenant of works for us and said, there was only one person before who could earn heaven. That was Adam, and he failed. But I'm going to earn heaven. I'm going to merit salvation by my perfection in life. And on the night before he died, he he came to his uh, to his disciples and he offers them you know the Lord's Supper, communion, um, and he says, "This is the new covenant in my blood." And and when he died on the cross, he he created, he um, brought into being um, the new covenant. He took that promise of grace in Genesis three fifteen and re- made it happen. He realized it in his broken body, in his burial, and then in his resurrection. And so after that, there's no other covenants between God and man. Jesus himself fulfilled it. You are either in Adam, Romans 5 says, or you are in Christ. There are two federal heads, two covenant heads. And if you're in Adam, you'll receive what Adam earned, which was death. But if you're in Christ, you'll receive what Christ earned, and that's eternal life. Um, and so that's that's the essence um, of covenant theology, the types of covenants we see, and and how it just holds the whole Bible together uh, and reveals Jesus. Yeah. So when you look at covenants throughout the Bible, and you you look at each one, and there, like Darren said, that it's not always as explicit as when he was talking with Abraham, where he says, "I'm making a covenant with you," or with Noah when he says, "I'm making a covenant with you." Um, you can see different elements of a covenant. Right there are the conditions mm-hmm. of the of the covenant. Here are the conditions. Then there is the sign of the covenant. Right with Noah, it was uh, the rainbow. There was uh, with Abraham, there was circumcision. Right, and then there uh, were the rewards of the covenant. Right, the, these these things that came. If you do these things, this is what will happen. Right. So you see these different elements, and so even if it isn't called, here's the covenant. Right, like David, it was very explicit. Right. I mean, he says, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring is going to be on the throne forever. And so you look for those different elements throughout throughout uh, what the Bible talks about. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Uh, Darren, Ben, thank you so much for that. Uh, that's pretty much an entire semester's worth of covenant theology. <laughs> Probably you would get at a seminary just condensed in about 10 minutes. <laughs> that was just perfect. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul, do you have anything to add? Uh, just that I'm about 60 pages in to the book and I feel like maybe I don't need to read the rest now or should I, keep going? <laughs> I love the 80s cover. Uh, isn't that Walverd's book? It, yeah, it's o, o. Palmer Robertson. O. Palmer Robertson. I love the before, 80s yeah. cover. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. It's important to point out that the aspects, there's a lot of people, especially even uh, Calvinistic Baptists that have an issue with this idea of the covenant of works. Um mm. But there's a great book also by um, by Richard Barcelos, Getting the Garden Right. And when I started studying yes. covenant theology, I read that book, and that just that blew my mind. I'd never read anything like that before. And he points that out. He goes through the confession and through the Bible to show that, yes, exactly what Ben was saying. Even if the word covenant is not used there, all the parts of the covenant in, with Adam in the garden are there, uh, with Noah, with Abraham, with David, they're all, they're all there. So um, you, you can, you don't have to call it the covenant of works You can call it whatever you want, but it was a covenant that God made with Adam in the garden that he broke. And because of that, we're, we're all fallen. And uh, yeah, you just, you just explained it beautifully. Uh, thank you very much. Um, on, on yeah, that note, it, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to point out, you know, Meredith Klein, who I wouldn't recommend trying to read. He's very, unless you're, you know, really into like pain, uh, he's very difficult to go through. But people who've read him a lot um, have distilled it. They they bring up something that's really important that when we deny, uh, whether not just in word, but in really in the fullness of our theology, when we deny the covenant of works on the front end, we will always bring it in on the back. So this is really important for us as Christians, because when we talk about the covenant of works with Adam and the covenant with Jesus, we talk about two you know, two big theological terms, the active righteousness of Christ and the passive righteousness of Christ. The active righteousness of Christ is where Jesus himself fully obeyed all of the law perfectly and perpetually for us. And the passive righteousness is where he humbly received passively the punishment that we deserve. So without both of those truths, um, we salvation would depend on us. So uh, in Second Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? So we receive God's righteousness. He gets our penalty. It's this double imputation that uh, you know, Martin Luther talked about, the great exchange. When we, get, when we fail to acknowledge or believe that we receive the earned, merited favor from Jesus, or another way to put it is, we are saved by works, just not ours. We're saved by Jesus's work. When we fail to believe that, then we're always going to believe that it depends on, at some level, on our covenant faithfulness. As long as I maintain my faithfulness before God, then I know that I've earned, you know, glory at the end. Yeah, Jesus did it on the front end. This is the Galatian controversy, right? That we're saved by faith, but then we're perfected by works. And Paul says, no, anathema, may it never be. We are saved by faith. And we're perfected by the Spirit through faith along the whole way through. All our all we do as Christians is we look to the finished work of Jesus, receive that, and then out of that we can obey and follow God imperfectly, but in Christ it's always perfect because He was perfect. And so that's why that covenant of works, whatever you call it, is so important to Christianity. And when we lose it, we always end up with some kind of legalism on the back end just to make up for it. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. Can I ask a a quick question? Um, So I kind of was under the impression that, you know, these two covenants, I don't know, were enforced at the same time. I don't know. This is an ignorant question, I know. But 
so in James chapter two, you know, it talks about Abraham. He he believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So was he justified the same way that that we are? I mean, was that covenant enforced then, or how does that work in the Old Testament? That is a fantastic question. Um, and one I know talking with some of my other former LDS friends as well is a very, uh, it, it really, it, it makes it it's such a foundational question. First Corinthians 10 tells us that all those who were saved in the Old Testament were saved by looking to the rock who was to come after. And, and that apart from faith and apart from the working of the spirit in the hearts of man in Romans 8 and Hebrews 11, it's impossible to please God. Um, the faith itself is what pleases God, right? And so they didn't know who Jesus was, but from that very first moment after the fall, they knew that there would be a Messiah. And then is that, and you even see a, a developed theology with Cain and Abel, where they knew that sacrifice was needed to be right with God, and that it wasn't the type of sacrifice, but rather the heart behind the sacrifice that was important. And so the covenant of grace was promised. Um, and this is where this kind of gets into what type of covenant theology do we believe? Because Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists are going to say very similar and very different things at this point. Um, what what Reformed Baptists were, you know, my, uh, you know, Ben's in my tradition, is that the covenant of grace was promised in Genesis 3.15. And every single person who has ever been saved since then until Jesus comes again is saved through that promise of the covenant of grace that was realized and enacted by Christ. Now, the our Presbyterian brothers would say that that promise was the covenant of grace. So if the covenant of grace existed in its fullness then, just under a different administration. Um, but even though we differ on our understanding of how those covenants work out, we're both saying the same thing about salvation. The only way that anybody was ever saved is that they were looking forward to or back to Christ and what he would do on our behalf. Yeah. And a lot of times the covenants when are a, you know, Colossians talks about the mystery that is revealed, right? Not that it's like Sherlock Holmes where we're trying to figure things out. It's a mystery in that it is, it is slowly revealed over time. So yes, it is something where we look back and say, you know, Abraham had a very uh, short period of history to look back on, right? He still, I'm sure, you know, knew of Genesis 3.15, the, the, the covenant of, of grace. And, you know, God, he sacrificed to God and, and he demonstrated faith in God, of course. Um, but you see that mystery is slowly revealed, right? You look at um, the Passover, uh, that mystery was partially revealed again. And these kind of types that you can look back to, and they understood them as something greater was to come. David, when he received the covenant uh, that God made with him, um, he didn't look and say, wow, this is great. Solomon's going to be on the throne. He looked and said, the second part of the Trinity, Jesus is going to be on the throne. The son of God is going to be on the throne. I, I, I believe David knew that and David understood that. Not as fully as we understand today, but I don't think he was, you know, so for example, um, when Eve had uh, her first son after the promise, right? Genesis 3.15. Mm. 
Some would say, she said, hey, Seth has been born. God has given me a son. What she was saying was, God has given me the offspring that is going to crush the head of Satan. She believed the Messiah had come. Well, he didn't, right? Because he died and he didn't fulfill the law. So they they had this forward. In, and in Jewish history, they would pass things down in how they would speak things. And so they would... Um, these covenants were were talked about and this history was talked about and the grace in in Genesis 3.15 was passed down. And so they understood what was promised. Um, And then, of course, you know, people during Jesus' time had forgotten about what the covenants really pictured. They Mm -hmm. thought the Messiah was coming in a very physical sense, right? They were looking for a savior like one of the judges or like David, the king that they, they revered. They wanted a physical Messiah to come and eradicate the Romans. And that's why they rejected Jesus so bad. And they do really to this day, um, because a Messiah isn't killed. A Messiah conquers. And so that's why they rejected him in that day. And that's why they rejected him, you know, even even still today. I know that's not LDS necessarily, but. Yeah, I was listening to one of your uh, sermons on the on the website, I think. Was it called the Tale of, of Two Kings, uh, referencing that that prophecy about how the serpent would would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head? And I can see, uh, you know, the fact like what you just said, Ben, about you know the Messiah dying. I mean, the the death blow is supposed to be dealt to the serpent, mm. and so <laughs> that's the one who gets his head crushed. And so I could see it appearing. Uh, that that wasn't the fulfillment of the prophecy, but actually it definitely was the fulfillment of the prophecy. So kind of interesting how that works out sometimes. Yeah. I was going to mention too, like going back to your original question, Michael, the reason why we can, why Paul could quote Genesis 15 in the book of Romans for the doctrine of justification for people in that day was specifically because they're saved the same way in Paul's time as Abraham was saved. Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. So if we took this idea that the Jews were saved in some other way than they were in the time of Paul, he couldn't be able to quote Abraham as the prototype for how we are saved. So right. it's the same covenant of grace since, um, you know, since Adam and Eve were, were left the garden, you know, they were offered that covenant of grace uh, ever since then, you know, with the, with, like you said, Genesis three, when that, when that proclamation was made, it's the same way of salvation. Yeah. Sorry, Paul, I saw you coming off mute. I was going to say something. No, go ahead. Um, so I mentioned on Sunday as well, um, you know, we talk about Israel and I think a lot of times people get caught up in this idea because it is a people group. They call them the Jews. They say anybody who was born a Jew, you know, they were, they were Israel, right? Paul very clearly says not everybody who is of Israel is Israel. Wouldn't it be very inconsistent of God to say in the old Testament, Listen, as long as you were born in and you have the proper bloodline, you're good. Now you have to believe and you have to, you know, this is how you do it. It would be very inconsistent. So something that was very helpful for me in making this distinction as I was studying um, is just calling them from the from Genesis till now or in Genesis through Revelation is calling them God's people, right? We, we even walk into, well, the, the, um, the Bible talks, well, not specifically, but the Bible, we, we think of the invisible church, right? If I walk by someone and I don't know they're a Christian, it doesn't make them not part of the church, right? 
there's the visible church, there's the invisible church. When you walk into a church as well, there are, you know, the Bible refers to sheeps and, and and sheep and wolves, right? And not all of Israel is Israel. And so we look at that and say, there are God's people from the beginning and there are God's people through the end of history. And that and that distinction really helped me understand it. Um, because even, I mean, you think of Ruth, right? You think of Rahab, you think of um, all these people that should never have made it into the Bible and have spots in the genealogy. Yeah. Well, and I think that that comes back to to what you guys are saying about what an LDS covenant is, right? What makes you part of God's people from an LDS perspective? And, and maybe I'm overstepping here, and please correct me if I am, but it would seem that by making and keeping covenant, you are proving that you are God's people. But with God, what makes you God's people is that you have been saved by grace through faith. You have been justified by Him, uh, and that's what makes you God's people. You know, it's it's John first or John uh, one. You know, it's not by the will of man or by the flesh. You know, it's but it's by the will of God. Um, and so we don't do something that makes us God's people. God is the one who declares over us, and we simply receive it by faith that we are. Uh, that's what makes us God's people. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, exactly. I think that's how LDS would say it. Although LDS might push back and say, well, God offers the conditions of the covenant first, and mm-hmm. then we can make that covenant with him. So I think that's kind of how they would, they might uh, explain that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, God not only offers the covenant, he makes the covenant, right? It's not that, that just he, he puts the offer on the table and then you have to sign at the bottom. He, he writes it up and signs it himself. Um, mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about um, the covenants throughout the Bible uh, we've also, I, you, we kind of already asked, answered a question later. It sounds like, I know that Darren, we had talked about how you hold to 1689 federalism, uh, right? And so Ben, you yep. would also agree with that? Yes. We got, we got three 1689 federalists on the board. <laughs> oh man. I feel like, I feel like I'm home. <laughs> and, and just to clarify, I think for people who might be listening, who don't understand that. So the idea of Adam correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of Adam in being that federal head that passed sin down to everybody. Yep. In Adam, by one man, sin entered into the world. I mean, we're all different here, right? We probably all have different eye color, hair color, you know, height, and we all get those those characteristics from our parents. One characteristics that one characteristic that we get from our parents that all of us will get for our, from our parents that we will pass to our children is the sin. And that's, that's federalism. Yeah. Yeah. Federal is the Latin word uh, to it's the Latin use of the, the Greek word for covenant. So when we talk about a federal head or federalism, um, we're just Latinizing covenantal head or covenantalism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we see this in the United States. We have a federal government that was established by 50 states covenanting together, saying we will have one government. Um, But in the Bible, we don't have, you know, all of Adam's offspring coming together saying, we have one head and his name's Adam. God's the one who says, there's a covenant. I'm making a covenant with Adam. Adam was created perfect, holy, and righteous. Um, And so he was the perfect representative for all mankind. Um, And so he is our federal head in that sense. He stands as our covenant head. If he keeps the covenant, everybody gets the blessings of it. 
if he fails the covenant, everybody gets the curses of it. Um, and we might think, man, that's that's not a that's not fair. I how why should I get what Adam got? Um, well, it's because you know, or or we might say it another way: if I only if only I had been there instead of Adam. Trust me, Adam had everything. We didn't. He didn't even have a sin nature yet. He failed. Um, you know, we received from him because he stood in our place. And if we're a believer in Christ, we should have no problem with this at all because we also received from somebody else who stood in our place, and that was the salvation that Christ earned. Um, and that's, again, Romans 5 is so key for this whole understanding of federal head and federalism. In Adam, you get what Adam got. In Christ, you get what Christ got. You know, what a what an amazing promise. <laughs> I mean, as you start going to Ephesians 1 and 2, you know, you've been blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places that God, being rich in mercy, longs to lavish upon us the riches of his kindness and grace. Why? Because Jesus earned that. He earned that for us just as much as Adam earned death for us. You know, that it's what it's amazing grace. Amazing grace that we get that. Let me jump in here and ask a question that that some Latter-day Saint listeners might have, and I want to make sure I'm not understanding or misunderstanding as well. So Paul calls Jesus the second Adam, right? Mm-hmm. And and you, you said that if Adam had kept the covenant of works, then everyone would have benefited from that. And because he disobeyed, everyone received the cursing that he brought upon himself by disobe- disobedience. Um, when we're talking about Jesus, Jesus perfectly kept the covenant, right? He perfectly did and carried out the, the work that the Father had given him to do. Um, but not everyone bet- receives that benefit. Um, right. And so it, it almost sounds like what we're saying is that that Adam keeping the covenant would have been superior to Christ keeping the covenant. So can you can you touch on that for us? Because I think it's like it's a question that the Latter-day Saints might have. Totally. Um, if Adam had kept the covenant, then everybody who is in Adam would have received it. And Jesus, in keeping the covenant, actually obtained everything for it for those who are in Christ. What Jesus accomplished is the same as what Adam was offered, <clears throat> in that obedience merits eternal life. And so, you know, to say that Adam, you know, would have gotten, you know, it would have been better if Adam had done this. um, That's where we, at at that point, we fall on the secret, uh, you know, the mysterious wisdom of God, where where God tells us in Deuteronomy that what is revealed belongs to us, but what is kept secret belongs to him. So oftentimes when we get to this point, we wonder why. Why did God allow Adam to fail? You know, and one of the things that, and this is where, you know, the question of free will often gets brought up and things like that. And we won't dive, I won't dive too deeply into it, but God offered, he could have made Adam an automaton who had absolutely no choice but to sin uh, or but to, but to obey. Um, but he didn't because God wanted that covenant to be freely kept. Uh, and and ultimately earned. You know, if if Adam had no ability to to fail, then he didn't really. There wouldn't have been anything to earn, um, because there was no possibility of of failure in that sense. And so that free will, so to speak, you know, we have, we always have to remember free will is 
based on contingency. We are contingent creatures. And so our, our concept of free will is always undergirded by the ultimate sovereign free will of God, who is the only truly free being. Um, Adam was free within the, con- the, the constraints of his creature. He could have obeyed. He could have disobeyed. Um, and God allowed him to disobey. The only reason we're given is because it pleased God to reveal the glory of both his justice and his mercy. And in Adam falling and sinning, his, God's justice towards sin is displayed, and God's glory towards, uh, in his mercy is displayed towards those who are saved. And that sounds to a creature to be extremely unfair. Um, that sounds, that's why we would say, man, Adam really was kind of better than Jesus. He could have earned it for everybody. Um, but that's because we don't see things from a God-centered view. We don't value the glory of God the way God values the glory of God. And so God's revealed some of it to us. And then he asks us to receive that by faith and trust him, that God being all wise, all good, all knowing, all powerful, has done what is right. Um, Can the God of all righteousness, uh, Abraham says, when talking about the destruction of Sodom, will you destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? Will the God of all righteousness do what is evil? You know, and and God, the answer is clearly no. God is the God of all righteousness. He'll never do what is what is evil, but he hasn't he doesn't owe it to us to tell us everything about what he's done. Um, but so so it's kind of a rabbit trail a little bit on your question. Was Adam, did he have the opportunity to do more than what Jesus did? And and Paul would say in Romans five emphatically, absolutely not. Every, because it's it's all related to who is your covenant head. Adam didn't um, obtain the blessing, and so we don't operate. God doesn't operate on hypotheticals. Um, you know, there's a, a view of God called Molinism, or this middle knowledge view of God that God just kind of sees what the best possible way forward would have been and picks that path. Um, but God is not dependent on what we do. God determines all things, and so God, Adam failed, but. Jesus succeeded. That makes Jesus infinitely greater than what than Adam in that sense. And the covenant that he earned infinitely greater than the covenant Adam failed in, because Jesus actually did what uh, what he was commanded to do instead of Adam. So it's kind of a meandering way. I don't I, I don't know if that actually answered the question, but I hope it's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good, and and I want to kind of step back and remind our listeners that 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 question comes from a place of, again, the assumption that we deserve salvation. Yes. Yeah. And, and so when you start talking about, well, you know, the, the LDS view looks better because everyone is saved to a kingdom of glory, um, you're stepping away from the view that where God is sovereign and where we have to say, um, ultimately, regardless of how many of his creatures, God chooses to save, God is worthy of our worship. And that's a realization that for a Latter-day Saint is tough to come to. Um, and I, I, but it's an, it's a, it's a realization that is necessary for understanding who God is and who you are in relation to him. So, yeah, I appreciate the answer. Uh, just want to, just trying to tease out some things that Latter-day Saints might be thinking as they're listening. Yeah. Great questions. Um, so I wanted to kind of, talk a little bit about 
why there are so many different covenant theological systems. You know, why do when you when you look at Lutherans, they they kind of focus more on the law gospel distinction. They don't really have uh, or, you know, like a super in de- detailed, robust covenant theology like that came later with the reformers. There's also dispensationalism that has the the seven different dispensations throughout time. There's the Reformed Pado-Baptist covenant theology that we had mentioned. Um, there's 1689 federalism, and, and there's also even a different kind of subtly different Reformed Baptist covenant theology. There are so many different ways to l- look at all the covenants. Why, why are there so many systems? Why is it so difficult to tie everything together? Why, why didn't God just say, hey, this is the covenant theology system that you need to believe? You know, why didn't he just make it absolutely clear? You know, that's a lot of questions. That's a lot of, (laughs) I'm asking that, I'm asking that question because Latter-day Saints will say, well, if God made it so clear in the Bible, why don't you all agree on the same thing? Right. So that's kind of why I wanted to ask this question. Yeah. And and I think that's a fair question. Um, Every time we come to a biblical truth, right. a, A theological point, there is always the danger of reading into the Bible what are either preconceived ideas or our theological structures will tell us, rather than saying, and it, it's, it is very hard to say, well, just let the Bible speak for itself, right? Because we all come with preconceived ideas, right? And so there are, I would say from the outset, that is the very basic reason. So we will either swing one way, you know, if, if Lutherans, you know, say it's this because, and then they go into their history of here's the reason why we focus on this. And it comes from a lot of these things from our past, right. And what Luther taught and what, what, you know, these teachings and then the teaching in their church up till that point. Um, Or we swing over the other direction and say, well, we overemphasize these things um, with the lack of other things, right. Dispensations, um, that was a, you know, in a, a school of thought that came, you know, and started and, and that person had a lot of influence, right? They, they had their own seminary. And so, of course, there's going to be a lot of people who follow after that in that dispensational thinking. The question of why, like, there, there's all sorts of different differences. It would be great if we all just reunified and it, like, we all had the same thing, right? And, and, I, and I agree with that. Um, but the important thing to remember about the, the the distinction between like Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Reformed Baptists and this kind of Baptist and the other kind of, what we do all agree on is salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And if we were differing in those types of things, I think the, it, it, the modes of salvation, if someone says, no, you have to be saved through this, that, or the other, then we would, in the church historically, has said, no, you're a heretic, right? That is wrong. All the church agrees with that. If someone comes in and says, no, Jesus isn't God, the, the historic church and the Bible says, you're a heretic, right? They've agreed on that from the very beginning, right? If someone denies the Trinity or someone, you know, denies very basic things about what the Bible teaches, they declare that a heret- those people a heretic, and they've done that resoundingly. When we get to these types of things, I would say, again, these aren't gray areas, but like, listen, we'll get together. It, it, you know, Darren and I both have preached at 
a Presbyterian church, right? They were searching for a pastor and didn't have a pastor for a long time. We would happily preach there. Why? Because they believed the gospel. Would we love for them to understand covenant theology and reformed theology and like walk lockstep with us? Yes, that would be great. But the important thing is they get the gospel right. And I, I'm sure there's there's deeper ways of, of looking at that and why there are differences. And there's a lot of different reasons why. But, uh, you know, when, when I look at it, that's, that's what I, I understand. I hope it doesn't trip up our LDS friends who, you know, say, why are there so many denominations? Well, there are those denominations, but we all agree that the Bible is the word of God. It is inspired it doesn't need to be added to. It should not be taken away from. We believe in salvation by grace, by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone. Like we agree on the major things and those little things, although it changes the name on the building, it won't change our eternal destiny. Yeah. It comes down to mediatorship. Who is the mediator between God and man? If the mediator, as the Bible tells us, is Christ, then each believer is responsible before God for what they believe. If, however, the mediator is a church, pope, an institution, a tradition, then that institution, person, pope, whoever, gets to determine what everybody else believes. And so, like what Brian, what Ben was saying, you know, we have, we do have unity because Ephesians tells us the church is built upon the foundation laid for us by the prophets and apostles. And he later in Ephesians 4 says we have one Lord, one baptism, one faith. Speaking of baptism in Christ, um, we have a very unified set of beliefs when it comes to the essentials. So yeah, uh, in fact, I'm going, you know, there, I've got a friend who's planting a church uh, in Decatur, Illinois, and I've been on an accountability board with him. And the guy who's leading this accountability board, the church being planted is a Reformed Baptist church like ours, but the, the pastor who's closest there that's leading this accountability board is a Lutheran. Yet we're joined together in a common cause because we have a common view of, of salvation. Um, you know, we have churches in the area around us that we would disagree with, you know, pretty pretty vocally about some some secondary issues. But yet we're all, we know that we're on the same page. We're not in competition with one because you know there's the, while there's differences, there's a unity there. The reason why there's differences is because each individual believer is responsible before God for how they come to Scripture and what they understand from Scripture. Um, I'm reminded of the proverb uh, that says it's the glory of God to hide knowledge. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. Um, there is a there is a type of glory that comes yeah, that, that God receives when we immerse ourselves in Scripture and seek to know and understand more and more of who He is. And there's a, a growth process for us as we come to know more and more of who He is. And like Paul, we put away childish things and we become more mature in our thinking. He even appeals to this in Philippians, that those of you who are mature think this way. And if any of you disagree, God will show him. So Paul even anticipates that on some of these matters of doctrine, there's going to be disagreement, as long as it's not over the essential matters of doctrine. Um, and then after that, the, the reason why you have so many different views of covenant theology, in particular dispensational theology, um, a lot of that just comes down to like what, what Ben was saying. It's a study of hermeneutics, the study of how do we study Scripture? How do we understand Scripture? Um, do we allow 
the Old Testament to be primary? Do we allow the New Testament to interpret the the, the old? The all these different you know systems that we use to study and interpret Scripture, which should come out of Scripture itself. Hopefully, we're allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Um, but we're all going to come with our preconceived notions and theologies and ideas. Um, as, but we have to always let Scripture judge those theologies, judge those ideas, judge those systems, and see if they hold to be true. So, for instance, dispensationalism, you know, there's there's a ton of different kinds of dispensationalism. So, I'll, I'll refer to the original late 1800s, early 1900s version of dispensationalism actually believed that Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law. That's That's actually a denial of key central Christian doctrine. And so we would look at that and go, that is an unbiblical, even heretical system for understanding Scripture. And and now that system has changed. So you have somebody like MacArthur, who's a, who considers himself dispensationalist, but he doesn't believe that the Old Testament saints were saved, you know, through the law, that, but that they're saved by grace through faith. Um, so we hold to this consistent, unified belief in the method of salvation, but we have differences in how we understand Scripture because we come at Scripture in different ways. Yeah, and I think Darren touched on a couple things I think that's important. There are primary things and there are secondary things, right? Primary things, you know, Scripture being the Word of God, Jesus being God, Jesus is the only way of salvation, you know, those types of things, those primary issues. Then there's secondary issues, right? You know, what type of music do you have in church? You know, I, I, I would put, you know, the, the type of eschatology that you believe in, right? Like there, there are a lot of different things that we need to be gracious with people on. Um, and it's very hard, right? Um, when we would like everybody just to believe the, the right thing, because of course, what I believe, I mean, it, it's biblical, it's in the Bible. So why doesn't people believe it? Right. And they would say, well, it's in the Bible, Ben. Why don't you believe what I believe? But on those prime, and that's that's what I love so much on the primary things. We celebrate, we get together, we pray, you know, and and and, and we love it. Um, but on the secondary things, we can bicker back and forth, we can poke each other, we can laugh at each other and have fun with it, right? Don't take those too seriously. Nobody's excommunicating over those things. Um, and, and, and if you do, you probably shouldn't. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. I really appreciate how you, you both address the, the concept that there is still unity in the faith, even despite our differences. And, um, I don't know who said it or but I've heard it, but thankfully by the grace of God, denominational lines don't extend into heaven. Amen. We'll, we'll no, we'll no longer be separated by those church walls or those church signs, but we'll all be one church of Christ. And, and, um, I also, uh, thank you also for addressing the idea that, it also depends on your hermeneutical method and how we interpret scripture. Um, and I think everybody wants to come at the Bible and interpret it correctly and consistently because we love God and we love truth. Um, maybe this, uh, we, so we had an, an episode with uh, Jeremy Howard, who's at uh, Orchard Hills Bible church in Utah Valley. And he submitted a kind of a question. Uh, maybe it'd be interesting to, to kind of get your guys perspective on it. Um, so here's what he posted in our Facebook group quote, if the prophets of the old Testament, weren't actually giving national Israel a promise of future restoration. Did they know it? End quote. So what I got out of that is he was trying to ask about kind of like literal fulfillment of prophecy of the restoration of Israel versus typological. That's kind of what I got out of it. But what, what, what's your guys perspective on that? How would you answer that? I would say yes, no, and kind of. 
<laughs> um, yes, in the sense of, you know, I don't know if it's first or second Peter, it talks about the second Peter says they knew that the things that they were prophesying were not necessarily for them. Um, they knew that there was going to be a later fulfillment and that it was a mysterious fulfillment. They knew that it was shrouded in this mystery. Um, but I would also say, in the sense of, you know, you know the, with the question being, did they know they weren't actually giving national Israel a promise of future restoration? Um, you know, I think we, and, the, and this is, you know, this would go to a secondary issue, right? Um, because what I'm going to say, some people would probably very uh, strongly disagree with it. But I would say that we make an error when we assume that the spiritual fulfillment, what we would term spiritual fulfillment, isn't literal. Um, we usually uh, use that as our hermeneutic, right? Well, I, you know, I'm literal. I'm a literalist. You know, I, I, if if God made a promise to Abraham to give him the land, and he walked through the land from north to south, and God promised that he would restore Israel to that land, then there has to be a future restoration to the people of Israel. And so we need to be allies with Israel and all those other things that go along with it. Um, a physical fulfillment is not necessarily a literal fulfillment. You know, God himself is spirit. The physical is not the ultimate. You know, God himself being spirit reveals to us that the spiritual is, is preeminent. Um, and so spiritual fulfillment is a literal fulfillment. It's just a fulfillment in a way we didn't expect. Um, G.K. Beale <clears throat> puts it in his uh, uh, New Testament biblical theology. He compares it to, imagine if in the early 19th or 20th century, early 1900s, uh, a father promised, you know, sees a, a horse-drawn buggy. And he tells his, you know, five-year-old son, when you're, you know, 20, when you move out of the house, whatever it is, I'm going to buy you a horse and buggy. And he promises that because that's the, the best mode of transportation that his son can even conceive of. Well, 15 years down the road, Henry Ford comes along and, and now you have the automobile. And if he received, you know, the, when he moved out of the house, an automobile, is that son going to look back and say, dad, you promised me a horse and buggy. You have failed to come through on your promise. He's like, he looked at that and go, no, you something better has come along that fulfills what I thought it would be, but in a way grander method, way that, that I couldn't have even conceived of 15 years ago. And I think that that's personally, I think that that's the right way to understand uh, scripture so that when the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 says, I will restore Israel. I will gather Israel back to me. We actually see that happen next too. We see, and, and Acts 2 is very careful in its language, it says that all Israel, that, that Israel from all over the world, every corner of the world was gathered at Pentecost and heard the gospel. God gathered national people, but then he also tells us in Romans 11, that is those of faith who are Israel, uh, like Ben was saying earlier. And so God did fulfill his promise by bringing in the Gentiles, making them true Israel, and also in Acts 2, bringing in this eschatological fulfillment of all these promises in the restoration of a new people group. The, the book of Matthew, which I, I'm getting to, I get to preach through on Sunday mornings, um, you see Matthew setting up Jesus as a new Israel and the 12 disciples as the new 12 tribes. And you see this, this um, type an antitype in scripture. And it's this hermeneutical method of type and antitype where 
the type is a shadow and the anti-type being the fulfillment is always greater and bigger than what the shadow. Um, and so some people will look at that and it's okay that other, that other believers disagree with, with me on this issue. This again is a secondary issue that we can uh, disagree on. But I think when we, when we make the Bible too much about, or it's got to have a one-to-one physical correspondence, I think we've missed some of the grandeur and beauty and glory of of what God has given in the spiritual. You know, Hebrews 12, we have come to a kingdom that cannot be touched, so much greater than, than Sinai. The new Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21 is the bride of Christ, the church descending, coming to Jesus and being united to Jesus. We think that there's got to be a future for Israel. And again, for those who think there is a you know, future literal thousand-year reign, that's that's a biblical orthodox way of of working through that and i just think it's a it's less than what god has promised in the church but again that's a that's a an area that we can disagree with on and uh, and uh, enjoy a lot of unity and write lots of books about and <laughs> have a good time discussing Hebrews 11 sums it up this way you know talking about abraham he said the abraham isaac and jacob he said uh, these all died in faith, not receiving the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So they were looking like they received these promises, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they knew it was more and different than a physical land. For people who spoke thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And people might say, well, that was Abraham. You know, he fulfilled it. Well, he goes through all these people, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, Moses, all these people. In the very last two verses in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, and all these, talking about the people, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better, like Darren was talking about, for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, right? So I I think we take that first passage that was spoken of Abraham. I don't think even Israel thought of like this sand, this physical portion of land. I think they were longing for uh, that homeland that was beyond here, that was in heaven. Yeah, it's it, and it, it's why it's why I'm a 1689 Federalist, right? So when we talk about that brand of uh, covenant theology, um, in that brand of covenant theology, it believes that the promise given to Abraham contained a spiritual and a physical promise. There's a physical promise of land and descendants and a nation. And what's amazing to me is Joshua actually tells us that that physical promise was fulfilled. Uh, in Joshua 21, 45, it says that all of the promises God made to their forefathers, he fulfilled. Not one of them failed. All of them came to pass. It's a categorical statement that God makes. And so when, when Israel conquered the land, they were actually fulfilling the physical preservative promise that God covenanted to Abraham. But there was a spiritual promise underlying all of that that a seed would come who would bless all the earth. It wouldn't be a national blessing. It'd be a global blessing. 
and it would come through faith. The faith that Abraham had before um, before the promises of circumcision and covenant faithfulness in Genesis 17 and 22 came about. Um, so that, that dual nature of the Abrahamic covenant, I think, is, is so key to understanding what was going on in the Old Testament. Well, there was a lot of physical things that were shadows pointing forward to an ultimate reality, but that ultimate reality is fulfilled in Christ. And that's why covenant theology, you know, why what really changed for me, you know, growing up as a Christian in a, in a Christian home, and I grew up believing, you know, in a dispensational, uh, more of a dispensational uh, bent and belief system. But when I, I came to scripture, I didn't see Christ in the Old Testament with that. I didn't understand what all those laws were about. I was just like, well, that was for them. That was one of the key things that, that covenantal theology really unlocked for me. Uh, in my experience of it, is it helped me see that all of it, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. And whether it's a shadow or the substance, you know, the the promise or the fulfillment, Jesus is at the center of all of it. And and that really shaped, um, you know, just why I love covenant theology and why I think it, it's so helpful to us as believers to see that structure because it really points us to Jesus in the gospel over and over and over. Man, thank you so much. You know, it's, it's funny because as, as both of you were answering, it answered probably three or four of my questions that I submitted to you guys. So I don't know if you were consciously thinking about that or if it just worked out that way. But um, one of our listeners, Andrew Mills, asked, well, what's the, what, why, why are covenants so important to Christians? Why is it so important to understand covenants? And I think you nailed it right there, Darren, at least for me also. When I came out of Mormonism, you know, it's very difficult because what do you keep? What do I throw away? You know, was everything I learned as a Mormon wrong or is some of it okay? And I, you know, I had to kind of like, we each have to deconstruct what we previously were taught and what we believed. And so that was part of it. Covenants. How does that all work out? And as I started studying, you know, I was introduced to Reformed theology through James White, his debates, his program. And I was attending simultaneously a Reformed Baptist church and uh, an OPC church. Uh, I, I really wanted to give Presbyterianism a fair shake, you know. Um, we've talked about in previous episodes where the Book of Mormon. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. You're the you're the Book of Mormon master, but it says something along the lines of um, all those who believe that an infant has a need of baptism for remission of sins, even has the thought of it, is condemned to hell. Something along those lines, right, Michael? Yeah, very close. If you should die while in the thought, you will go straight to hell. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, when I found out that some Christians baptize infants, I was like, okay, I don't want to let my bias affect me and my theology. I want to come to the Bible and I want to know what God teaches, you know? So I was studying covenant theology. I was studying the reformed pedo Baptist covenant theology, reformed Baptist covenant theology. And uh, actually I wanted to show, I have a few books related to covenant theology. Uh, I don't have the English version, actually. <laughs> this is the French version. Pascal Deneau's yes. book. Uh, Great book. It, I forget what it's called, the particular or Baptist covenant theology. The uh, distinctiveness of 17th century uh, particular Baptist or Baptist covenant theology. It's a right. long title because it was a thesis <laughs> that he turned into a book. <laughs> well, that's, that's why I love, I bought the French version because I served my mission in France. So I wanted to get through it. I read it in English, the, the entirety of the book in English. And I was like, Hey, it's, he has a French version. I'll read that eventually. And I gave my English copy to my pastor. So that's why I showed this one. But uh, nice. That's why I like this version. It's a lot smaller. It basically just translates to a better covenant or a more excellent covenant. So that's a lot shorter <laughs> to explain. But um, I just love the way he just tore it down and, and show 
exactly what you guys have been teaching. And when I studied out the covenant theologies, I see the merits of the Reformed Pado Baptist covenant theology, but just the way he connects all the covenants together, especially, you know, the covenant, you know, the Sinai, the Sinaitic covenant, the co- you know, the covenant given to Moses yeah. um, and how it's not the same substance as the covenant of grace. Um, yeah. That it's, it's like you said, it's a shadow of the covenant of works and, and given to Adam in the garden, you know, do this and live is the kind of the, the motto of the Sinaitic covenant. It just made sense to me. And, and so I think for me, that's, that's where the, that's where covenant theology matters is there's practical implications. It's not just some kind of esoteric subject that, you know, that we can kind of like, you know, examine our navels all day and be like, oh, that's interesting and that's cool. I think it does have practical applications. Like you're saying, Darren, it points us to Jesus. It shows us that from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it's not just a mishmash of things happening one after the other. God had a plan and he was working it out. And there's progressive revelation, progressive covenants that he made with Israel that, that all were fulfilled in Christ and point to Christ. And so for me, that, that's, that's why it's important to me is, is, is it really helped me to understand or come to my position as, you know, to, to hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, because I believe that, that, that it's not infallible, but I believe that that confession, it describes biblical theology and condenses it in a confessional form that's most consistent with what scripture teaches. And we love, like, we, like we've said, we love our Presbyterian brothers and those who have different views. We just differ you know, based on how we understand scripture. Um, yeah. And I like that you bring that up because that was something that happened to me too, as I dug into covenant theology and Baptistic covenant theology, it actually really made me appreciate uh, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters in a way I hadn't before. I used to think those guys baptizing babies, they're like, they're up in the night. That's just a, a holdover from Catholicism they just can't give up because of tradition, you know, like it's, it, they're just crazy uh, on that point. Love them, but they're crazy. And w- the more I dug into that, that theology, I realized like, oh no, that they're actually coming to this from their, their genuine belief of what the Bible says. And I actually agree with them on a lot of points. Um, and so it really helped me appreciate how rigorous and thorough they are in understanding scripture and how it comes to that practical application, but it also drove me to a different practical application as I understood the covenants in what I think is a more biblical way. Obviously, they would disagree with me, but that's why I'm a Baptist now, is because of my understanding of the covenant, that only those, you know, the, the, the members of a church are not people who believed and their children, but only those who have believed. And that changes how you view how a church should be structured or ecclesiology. Um, and so that covenant theology, like you're saying, it's this tight little package. It might feel really big because it, it spans the whole Bible, but it, it kind of condenses biblical theology, that how the Bible progresses in its revelation of truth and systematic theology, everything the Bible says on a specific topic of truth. And it brings both of those disciplines together in one arena and you kind of get to see it's got a lot of practical outworkings for people um and if, you, if it's okay i want to touch on uh you know that listener's question as well andrew's question because he he also really wanted to know like how does covenant relate to obedience and i think that comes a lot back to a lot of where you guys are saying you know, lds people come from that you god makes covenant with us and then we respond with covenants to god and we obey and so covenant seems like, from a, an LDS perspective, to be a foundation for our obedience to God, our faithfulness to God. 
And so how does covenant from a Christian perspective relate to our obedience? And this is another key area where covenant theology has an immense practical uh, application to life. Because if we are saved under the covenant of works, then it is then if we do not obey, we are. But if we are saved under the covenant of grace, then the covenant of works is no longer, the law doesn't have to be obeyed anymore for salvation. All that we do now, instead of trying to earn salvation, we now obey in Christ. So all of our obedience, like the Heidelberg and, and the Orthodox uh, Baptist catechisms highlight that all of our obedience to God, even as saved individuals, is tainted with some measure of sin, because sin still, the old man still clings so closely. And so no act of obedience, as pure as we could imagine in, you know, personally, will ever suffice for the perfect command of God. But in Christ, it is reckoned as being a righteous act, not because we did it, but because Christ fulfilled all of it. So we no longer obey for salvation, but we obey because we're saved. And in fact, our relationship to the law has changed. So the law still exists. It's still an abiding uh, commandment for us. We don't throw out the law of God, but it no longer has the power to condemn, and it no longer uh, is looked at as being what is meritorious for us uh, or condemning to us, but it's been fulfilled. And so now we are free in Christ to follow him imperfectly, progressively, falteringly, and to seek to honor and obey because we've been given new hearts. And so Paul still commands us, you know, this is what love your neighbor looks like. It looks like obeying your parents, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, not coveting, you know, not bearing false testimony. He lists the second table of the law. Love fulfills the law. Well, Jesus fulfilled it for us, and now he commands us to love. And as we love one another, we are actually obeying the commandments of God. Romans 8 is thrilling and, and, and amazing in this capacity. It says, you know, we're no longer condemned because we're in Christ. And, you know, what we could no longer do uh, in the law because of the weakness of human flesh, God did, right? A beautiful, amazing, you know, just bomb of a verse. What we couldn't do, God did. And then verse four follows it up so that we might fulfill the law in Christ. So we no longer have to obey it to perfection. Jesus fulfilled it. But if we're in Christ, then as we live out that love for neighbor and love for God, we obey the commands because he gave them. Yeah. And and I think in summary, it kind of it's it's helpful as well to think of it in the idea of identity. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain belief structures that people are striving for a certain identity, right? I want people to know that I'm this way, so I do these things, right? In order to fulfill this covenant, I need to do these things. And it all boils down to the things that I do. I'm striving for an identity, right? Whereas as Christians, believing what the Bible says, we live from an identity. We are children of God. And because of that identity, we live differently, not in order to grab at an identity and try to be a certain thing, we are changed, right? First Corinthians 5.17, we are new creations. We are new creatures. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things, I'm sorry, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new, right? So we are 
our identity has changed. And so we live from that identity. That's, that's great. Thank you both for your responses. Um, just as a quick side note, I want to be respectful of your time. Is it okay if I ask one question and then we wrap up? We've, we've already gone over time, so I don't want to keep it's, you guys up. It's later. My kids are in bed. For us. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, Michael, if you're, if you're starting to nod off, you know, don't worry, you can log off. And, and you know, I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't judge you. Um, no, you didn't have to turn off your camera. I was just saying, I know, it's, I know you get tired. You know, you're, you're, you're always up early. But I, I'm just messing. I'm messing with you. <laughs> okay. No, no. Seriously, guys. Um, I mean, I'm not just saying this. I really love this discussion. I mean, it's like we're sitting under preaching right now. You know, it's just, it's awesome. Um, I'm really glad we got you guys on the program. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask one more question. It's kind of more of a practical thing, and, and it came from a personal place because, as a Latter Day Saint, I like like you were just finished saying, Ben. My identity was wrapped up in what the LDS Church taught me. I was a child of God. I was a priesthood holder. I was an elder in, in the Latter-day Saint church. I held the Melchizedek priesthood. I made covenants with God to which I would be held accountable. And that's who I was, you know, that's kind of my sense of identity. And so this is something that's very near and dear to many Latter-day Saints hearts. Um, they believe that they've made covenants with God in baptism, receiving the priesthood, uh, the temple ordinances, and in their marriage. And so when we preach the gospel to them and we say, that those covenants are not valid or, you know, that we're, sh- we're trying to share them the gospel to embrace it. They're being asked to reject what they consider as part of their identity. We're asking them to basically change their lives. We're, we're asking them to reject what they feel God had given to them. So it's a very sensitive topic, I think. And some, it's something that, you know, as a post Latter-day Saint and now Christian, it's something I forget sometimes, you know, it's easy for me to forget that, we're asking them to believe in Jesus and basically reject most of that identity that they've grown up with their whole lives. Um, so how do you think we should approach sharing the gospel with them with this in mind, knowing that their covenants are so important to them and we're basically telling them, no, those really aren't important in a sense. How would we go about doing that? Would you like to share yeah. first, Ben? And, and obviously you have to be very sensitive in how you do that, right? I mean, you can, drop bombs on people all day and they'll never, and they'll reject Jesus because of your approach, right? So that's important. Um, How would I do it? I would emphasize freedom. And what I mean by that is most of the LDS that I meet do not feel free. They are burdened with all the things that they must continue to do to reach a whatever level of heaven, right? The highest level, of course, is the goal, right? They're striving and they're earning and they're, you know, is this enough? Am I giving enough? Uh, You know, maybe I don't see the blessings that I see in my life that I think I should see. I'm trying to be obedient and it's driving them crazy because like, where do I need to do? And so they try to do more. And so my focus would be on um, uh, freedom, right? And I would talk about three things. And if they're in my home, it 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 is it's an awesome. I, I love the segue. My my uh, Wi-Fi names are GMF, right? And we talk about the three things that really LDS don't understand what the Bible's talking about: grace, mercy, and forgiveness, right? And in the in understanding those things, there is freedom 
in understanding that grace is not just everything that I do and then Jesus makes up, God makes up the rest at the end. That mercy is we deserve punishment and it's withheld from us. That that when he says we are forgiven, truly it is all forgiven. And so going back to something we talked about earlier, if we talk to, you know, if you, if you have friends who are um, Satan worshipers, or you have homosexual friends, or you have friends that are, you know, what, whatever it is. I mean, anything, I would never directly go after that because if they understand grace, mercy, and forgiveness, the rest will take care of themselves, uh, take care of itself. And so it's probably very offensive, right? So for example, you don't want to go after Joseph Smith right away, right? Because they're very, like, oh man, they bristle. Even even people who aren't attending a, a ward every Sunday, right? Who haven't maybe attended in years. You mentioned Joseph Smith and man, they're the strongest Mormon you've ever met. So I, I think going after the primary issues instead of secondary issues, talking about, you know, your final authority is, is it the Bible? You know, is Jesus God? Why, how are we saved? We're saved by grace. And then not that the covenants aren't important, but they're secondary. You know, you can talk about that. And, and that's where the discipleship comes in, where you are uh, deprogramming and then reprogramming. Right. And so it is important, but when I share the gospel with them, I probably won't ever bring it covenant theology in by name. I'll talk about it the whole time, of course, but not by name, because that's not what's primarily important. Yeah, I love, I love what you said there, especially about grace. Uh, I remember one time having a conversation with uh, a Mormon missionary, and it was one of the, was some, I still pray for this missionary, because we got to a point in our conversation, we were talking about grace, and I was describing the grace that we have in, in Jesus. And, and he actually asked me, what is grace? And it in a reveal the, the biblical view of grace was so different from what he understood. Um, you know, and talking about like those covenants, what this is something that is so near and dear. If I if I don't fulfill these, if I leave the church, I am that is the one thing that's going to damn me because I'm breaking these covenants that I've made. You know, and again, it, it touches on what you're saying, Ben, about freedom. If you are saved by grace after all that you can do, how could you ever know whether or not you've done enough? And if we're really honest with ourselves, no matter who we are, if you look at your covenant vows to your wife, to your spouse, to your husband, can you really say you've ever kept them perfect? And what if I were to tell you that there was one person who did keep every bit of the biblical command perfectly, and he did it for you, if you believe in him? And that, I think, is is the key to that, you know, these covenants that you've made between you and God, you've already broken them. You've already failed. You've already failed to do everything perfectly. And the Bible is clear that these extra commands, if it's not in Scripture, it's not a good command. That's um, what the Pharisees did. They added these commands. And so what are the commands of God? It's what we find in the Bible. And so if you've made a covenant that's additional, to, to the command of God, then you're not breaking a covenant with God, because that's not the covenant God's looking at. You know, God's looking at the covenant with Jesus to save. If you believe in him, then it's done. It's finished. Um, 
I also, I asked uh, one of uh, the, the guys at our church, uh, just a dear brother, um, Blake, uh, I, in preparation for this, I just, I asked him about, you know, the question that you posed on the, uh, in the initial email, like how has the preaching of the gospel affected those who are Mormon or, or previously Mormon? And uh, I, I just love what he said. He, so I'll read a little bit of what uh, my brother Blake uh, texted to me. He said, with, with Mormonism, it's always going to be, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And that concept will always force you to be at the center, always pushing, always trying to be better, be better. When he hears the gospel and receives Christ, he can now say, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. With a new heart, knowing that through Christ's finished work and believing he's God's only begotten son. And so it, it, again, it's that freedom, that freedom from the, the con- condemnation of the law. That you can actually be free to share where you're sinning with people, to share where you're failing, because you are free from the condemnation that that sin deserves. You don't have to worry about, you know, a bishop or anybody else coming down on you for what you've done. In a biblical church, you should be able to share the worst things about your life and be accepted because you're accepted already in Christ. That's beautiful. Thank you both. I'm thinking back to the time when I was deconstructing my faith in the LDS church. And I was trying to make my new beliefs after I felt like I was saved at some point, I trusted in Jesus to save me, but I was trying to fit that into my Mormon religion. You know, I was trying to trying to make it all work. Like I was, I was reading uh, James White's the forgotten Trinity on the bus ride to church, you know, like the Trinity is something LDS do not accept. They're very anti-Trinitarian. I was trying to be like a Trinitarian Mormon. And like one of the last things that really kept, kept me from leaving the church that like, it was like the single thread that I was holding on to was I believed in this idea of priesthood ordinances. You know, like you need baptism by this priesthood to be considered righteous, to get to heaven. And I remember reading also James White's, uh, the God who justifies and thinking about in my head sermons that I had heard, basically iterating what you've said. And when it finally clicked, like, you know, this idea that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness through belief that perfect righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. I realized I don't have to keep the law. I don't need these ordinances. I don't need everything that the LDS church claims to offer me to be right with God or to be accepted by God. Exactly what you've been saying. And so I just want to confirm what Blake has said and, and um, what you both have said. And I really thank you for your thoughts and your time. Um, Michael or Paul, do you have anything else to add? I just want to thank Ben and, and Darren for coming on. Uh, really appreciate this conversation. It's been good for me, and uh, I I hope and pray that it'll be good for our listeners as well. Um, if you're LDS out there and listening, uh, just know that that Jesus is all you need, and and grace is sufficient. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed listening to you guys. Um, I didn't even have a whole lot to interject because I was just enthralled the, the entire time. Uh, so remind me, it's called the, um, was it the 1689 London Confession? Mm-hmm. Great, because I just, I want to know what the name of my new beliefs are called. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we got four. We got four Reformed Baptists. All right, Paul, we, we got to work on you now. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, I've you know, Robertson, I'm reading it. <laughs> so so um, sometimes we, we recommend resources, you know, books for people to study if they want to know more. Uh, I already mentioned... Um, Pascal Deneau's book, um, if you want from a Reformed Baptist or not, sorry, Presbyterian uh, perspective, I would recommend that book by O. Palmer Robertson. 
There's also uh, there's also one by uh, Michael Horton. He has a slightly different view. He's also a Presbyterian, um, and his is called Introduction to Covenant Theology, I believe. R.C. Sproul has a book also, um, The God of uh, Promises or something something like that. Um, from a Reformed Baptist perspective, definitely Pascal Deneau's book. Um, this is also interesting, Greg Nichols' book, um, just Covenant Theology. He's a Reformed Baptist, but he has a slightly different view of Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology. Um, also, The Fatal Flaw, that was a really great book. Um, he also has slightly different views. So, you know, 1689 Federalism doesn't agree entirely with what he said, specifically about like the Abrahamic Covenant, but a lot of that we would agree with. Um, so, um, 1689federalism.com, I think it is, has a lot of great videos and resources there if you want to know more, more about, specifically about that view of covenant theology. Um, so if you have any other resources you'd recommend or, or do you have anything else you'd recommend that helped you? Yeah. Uh, the mystery of Christ by Samuel Renahan uh, is a great introductory level. It covers the whole span of covenant theology and uh, you don't have to be, uh, you know, academic or scholar to understand it. Uh, he writes really well. Uh, Barcelos, uh, what you mentioned, getting the garden right, org um, is a .org.com. I don't remember which. Brandon Adams, it's got tons of, of good stuff on it. There's another one um, by, uh, oh, his name will come to me after I give the title. It's called The Whole Christ, Sinclair Ferguson. Um, mm -hmm. That's a really, really good resource um, for this. It, it, it's not an introduction, I will say that, but it's it's a it's a good it's a good book to to read. Yeah, that's uh, an amazing book. I was also going to mention too. They've there's been a lot of great books in the past that have been starting to be reprinted. So Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ, Nehemiah Cox oh, and yes. John Owen. That's a great one. Uh, there's also if you want to get super nerdy, I haven't even finished this <laughs> one yet. This is like this is based I think on Sam Renahan's uh, dissertation. I think from yeah. Shadow to Substance: The Federal Theology of the English, Particular Baptists. I started reading it and I was like, okay, this is going to take me a little bit more time to digest this thing. It's a, it's a little bit more scholarly, but it's great. Um, like I said, I love covenant theology because you just don't understand scripture as a Latter-day Saint like that. You kind of see like, it's almost a dispensational view where God tries something, they fail. God tries something, they fail. But when you understand covenant theology, it's like, it's like a tapestry of just threads woven everywhere. And you're like, oh, okay, like there was a purpose to all this. You know, God had a reason and a plan for everything. It's beautiful. It just makes me love the Bible more. And it's, and it's, and like I said, it's why I'm a Reformed Baptist because of covenant theology. It's like, it just, it just makes so much sense. sense. Um, so uh, this is wrapping up. This is your time to plug anything you'd like. Uh, your church meeting times, if there are less listeners in Utah near Syracuse that would like to attend, uh, websites, sermons, uh, what would you like to share with our listeners? Yeah, we would, uh, if you're not currently part of a church, if you're, you're, uh, want to check us out, we're in Syracuse, uh, Utah. We meet at uh, the Syracuse Dance Academy at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. Um, and uh, we're not flashy, but you'll get the word, uh, the word sung, the word pray, the word preach. Um, so we'd love to have you there. Uh, we also have a, our pod, our sermons are online, um, both on our website, covenantgraceutah.org. Or you can get them on iTunes, Spotify, Google. Uh, I think it's Covenant Grace Church Sermons or Covenant Grace Sermons, something like that. But if you search Covenant Grace Utah, something like that, or just you know Ben's or my name, that should come up. Um, but yeah. Uh, and otherwise, you, you know, if you've got any questions, obviously, I mean, these guys here, great, great resources. 
Uh, if you're local and you just want to, you know, if you're in Northern Utah and you want to hang out, get to you know some of us, hit us up. Uh, I think our contact information's on the web. So one thing I wanted to point out too that I really loved that, uh, well, I won't go into that, but one thing I really loved is attending your services is that you have the Lord's Supper every week. When I heard that, I was just like, yes, I think that's how we should do it. Because as Reformed Baptists in our confession, the Lord's Supper isn't just something we remember. It's a means of grace. And I think you said, Darren, you said, uh, you know, if the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, why would we restrict it to us once a quarter or once a year? You know, I want it every week. And I, and I was like, oh, man, I'm right on board. I'm right with you there, brother. You know, God, God gives grace through <laughs> baptism in the Lord's Supper. So I want it every week, you know. So yeah, I, and I, I just wanted to say, point that out. For those who are maybe looking for more information, if you're in our area, um, check out on Facebook or on Instagram, Covenant Grace Utah. If you're uncomfortable, like just showing up for a service, um, reach out, send us instant message, ask questions. I know it can be, you know, maybe scary to say, I'm going to go to this place and I won't be attending my ward that morning. And what are people going to think? You know, don't, don't worry about that right away. If you have questions, please feel free, reach out. Um, we'd, we'd love to engage with you, um, meet with you wherever you want, or just, you know, behind the anonymity of, uh, social media, that's totally fine. Uh, a lot of people, you know, start there just reaching out, asking questions. That's totally fine. Um, either, either way you're, you're, you're welcome to join us at 1030. Um, but that might be something that's more of a step than you're willing to take right now. But if you do have questions, please feel free to reach out. Excellent. Thank you again, Ben and Darren for joining the program. Paul, do we have a plan for next week? Uh, do we have a plan for next week? Uh, so, yeah, like uh, yeah, we usually I'll, do an outro, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. We will Let's see you so guys be... next week, Fireflies, for <laughs> the mystery episode. <laughs> uh, so yeah, following following this episode, and we may, we'll probably split these into several, but following this will be um, our Article of Faith 9 episode where we're talking about what about continuing revelation. So Matthew, if you want to do a quick outro on that. But I just want to say quickly to um, to Ben and Darren again, thank you for coming on. I've really appreciated this. Um, yeah, this has been great. Thanks for having yeah, us. It was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Fireflies, for joining us for this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. Uh, so next week, we will be revealing our episode on continuing revelation. So stay tuned. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to do lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. 
Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyer flies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Word made flesh, the risen Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures for. the world.